Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. I am, of course, Ryan Howard. And today I am joined by my first guest, as advertised. We have Tim from the Knights and Nerds podcast. Tim, say hi. Hey, Ryan. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Really excited to uh, to talk to you. Oh, absolutely. Th this has been a long time coming. Agreed. Yeah. When when I saw you, you commented or posted on Reddit at some point about your podcast, which I have always been afraid to do because a lot of people get really upset about self-promotion on Reddit, and I, I don't know, well, I know why, but I don't see it as a big deal. So I was like, this guy's bold. Let me check out this podcast, and I ended up really liking it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, although... I, I should say that I may not be as bold as you think. I, I think in the podcasting subreddit, there's like a weekly thread where it like it just everybody goes in and posts about their their most recent episodes. And I just sort of happen to be post, posting there where it's kind of acceptable. So, I mean, I do I, I kind of am afraid to do self-promotion as well. I mean, I, I had made a post in the D&D &D subreddit. I checked. I checked with the mods first, and oh no, what? I think maybe it was that one that you saw because yep. I I had checked with the mods first because I had seen other podcasters do similar things, and they seem to have generally positive feedback. I think in general it's a very positive and supportive uh, community. So I checked with the mods. I I made the post. Uh, you know, didn't didn't have too much in the way of. Of feedback, which you know, I guess is sometimes the way it goes, and I, I guess you were the one of, one of the lucky few that saw it. Yeah, I saw that, and uh, the big thing for me, I saw you guys were on the same uh, podcasting. You were on the same like host for your podcast that my other podcast is on. I was like, oh, let's get in touch with these guys. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I listened to a bunch of uh, of your of the episodes of, of your other podcast of Digital Men. And there were a couple of a couple of things that you talked about that I, I wish I had written down, but I think you had mentioned one time about some kind of you know I'm I'm regretting bringing it up already because I, I the, the the specificity is escaping me, but I remember something about some kind of of it has something to do with wrestling, and I I remember thinking like that sounds insane and i want to check that out i really wanted to go back and figure out what it was that you had mentioned i think i had written it down i was at work and i wrote it down on a sticky note that i later lost <laughs> did it have to do with me wrestling because that was definitely a thing we talked about on the podcast i don't know if it was like something that you like about you wrestling i think it was maybe about another show or um something else that you may have been a guest on or that you had listened to Oh yeah, I was I was a guest on a podcast called How Did This Get Booked with uh two professional wrestlers, um Zane Riley and uh Man Scout Jake Manning, who are they're kind of they're local legends in, in North Carolina where I used to live. And we talked about a shoot interview with a wrestler named uh uh Billy Jack Haynes and all the conspiracy theories he had about the death of Chris Benoit. That definitely is ringing a bell because I, I, I was that I was like, that sounds just super fascinating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not even like, I'm not even into even, even in general, a fan of, I don't really follow wrestling in, in, in really any way, but that, that to me, I was like, I need to listen to that. So I thank you very much for reminding me what that was. 
<laughs> How did this get booked? <laughs> and alternatively, they guested on our podcast. Brent was absent that day, but I had both of them on, and we talked about Macho Man Randy Savage's rap album. Ah, <laughs> oh, this this flower just keeps unfolding. Yep. Like it just keeps blooming in in incredible ways. <laughs> there was a time. That, I mean, there was a time where I was actually training to be a professional wrestler. That time is over. It turns out you have to have athletic ability, and uh, I'm in short supply. So uh, I, I am not a professional wrestler anymore. I mean, I, I get that. I get the impression that athletic ability is kind of important, but I, I part of me kind of would have thought that some people might just be able to skate by like on showmanship, just pure showmanship. But maybe that's not true. <laughs> Those people can. They're called managers. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, that's... I actually burnt myself out on wrestling by trying to be a wrestler. I, I spent three months trying to be a professional wrestler, was so immersed in that world that when I kind of came to my senses and went, I'm never going to make money doing this and I'm about to get married, just kind of everything, I was very numb to wrestling. I had seen behind the curtain, I'd seen how the sausage was made, and now I have a great respect for it, but I don't watch it anymore. So it sounds like that three months must have been pretty tough. Like, were you? I'm I'm just getting this image in my head of you being like like bruised constantly, just in a constant state of 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 tenderness. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, the back bump was brutal. No one like hurt me, like no one physically hurt me, but I could not do the most basic like transition move that you see everyone do in every single match. And the humiliation I felt was almost as bad as the pain in my back. <laughs> well, I mean, it looks to be very, like, very kinetic. And, like, when I when I find myself, like, when I'm finally able to, like, go to a, a show, like a punk show or, or whatever, the, the few times a year I'm a, able to swing that, I, I like to get into the mosh pit, uh, which is maybe not, like, the wisest thing for for me to do i'm not i'm kind of a scrawny dude uh but it like it, it's like 30 seconds and i'm out of breath so i think that i'd be like right there with you be like i don't even know if i would have made it three months i would have been like one afternoon i've been like no nope, no nope, not for me so <laughs> the fact that you stuck with it for three months i think is like sounds to be quite a feat yeah and this is going to be the last thing i say about wrestling um on this podcast, I'm sure it'll come up again on future episodes at some point, but someday I will sit down and I will write a memoir of my three months in professional wrestling. It'll be like the polar opposite of like the Ric Flair book where he writes about four decades of wrestling. It'll be three months. <laughs> Everything I learned about wrestling in three months. I, I look forward. I look forward to that coming out. An insider slash outsider's perspective. <laughs> You you can count me as like your first pre-order. Awesome. <laughs> so, I like to start all of my interviews both on Digital Men and now on this podcast with just a series of questions that I ask everybody. And these are going to be just like the super general questions, get them out of the way beforehand, then we can get into some cool stuff. Sure. So, First question, how did you get into RPGs and D&D and this entire hobby? Um, well, I I first, like my first 
time, like my first exposure to D and D was when I was, I think maybe 14 or 15. So probably about 20 years ago. Um, and I, I vividly recall two of my friends who were playing, I think this was maybe just towards the tail end of second edition, um, telling me about what a tabletop role-playing game was. And I, I, I just couldn't grasp it. They're like, you just have to sit down and play it. I was like, so what do you do? And they're like, you can do anything you want. I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand the words that you're saying to me. Um, so we, we played some second edition uh, with, uh, you know, just I think me and uh, two or three of my other friends. And I, I do recall, I think Thacko is still a thing in second edition, if I'm not mistaken. Because I remember like rolling a d20 and then the, the DM would spend what seemed like 40 minutes figuring out whether or not I hit. I'm sure it was like 10 seconds, but back then it seemed just to be this interminable length of time. Um, and then I think we played some th like 3.5. Um, and then I can't recall. I don't think that there was a, like any real falling out. I think we just got our group of friends just got busy. Um, but that, that's kind of how I got started. I remember my first character was a, Oh, it was a minotaur fighter. And I think I died uh, getting eaten by a, like a land shark. Um, but that kind of like dovetailed into me playing a lot of Warhammer, like the fantasy Warhammer. And then, and then uh, I, th I did that through my mid to late teen years, um, kind of fell away from that during um, like when I went to university and then when I saw the episode of Community where they play D and I was like, oh man, I remember that being so much fun. And that kind of got me. That kind of reignited my my interest for it. And then it was fourth edition when I got back in. And yeah, that's that's something we actually have in common as far as the the Warhammer connection. I neglected to mention this in my first episode where I answered these questions for my audience to get to know me. But my first tabletop was Warhammer 40k. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, no, we had the, this local game store that did, like, the Fantasy Warhammer, Blood Bowl, um, 40K. Uh, I think there were some others. I, Mordheim, I'm pretty sure, was one of them at, at one point. Uh, but it was it was a great, it was just a, a, a great experience. And I, I remember, like, having, well, you have some more memorable uh, um, games than others, but there's still, like, a, a few very vivid memories. I, I played, I don't know if you are familiar with, like, the Warhammer fantasy armies but i played skaven for mobile for most and they were they were a lot of fun because they they run away at the drop of a hat so it's, it's always this constant struggle of trying to get them to go forward but they're always wanting to run away yeah i was a basic bitch space marine player so <laughs> <laughs> i was 13 although to be fair if i went back now and started playing again i would play space marines again well i mean they're they're uh they seem to me to be very appealing because, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, something about just the just being the good guys and having a lot of shock troops. Although I think um, I think I had a, not a subscription, but I remember there was a magazine, like a Warhammer, or maybe it was a Games Workshop magazine, I think it was called, was it White Dwarf? or yep, Red White Dwarf. White Dwarf. I remember being very enthralled with the Chaos Space Marines, and they had these units, I, I think they were called like Obliterators, 
where they had like like cannons coming out of their eye sockets like they had gun barrels coming out of various orifices of their bodies like some entire torsos would be like chest cannons and stuff mm-hmm. like that they were just yep. really i was looking looking at that i'm like kind of like half grossed out half <laughs> intrigued and uh, at that at that same local uh game store the owner i remember that he had gone into a professional like an actual legit tournament for fantasy warhammer he had played uh chaos demons he had a chaos demon army that he painted they looked gorgeous and he spent hours and hours i remember hours and hours painting these things and then he had gone to somebody's just taken a break from his painting went over to somebody's table and was like hey so like so and so why did you paint your entire army pink and he's like (laughs) And the, and he, the the guy was like, uh, I haven't painted my army pink. I think you've been just staring at red models for far too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! It's a sign of dedication because I, I yeah. think he actually won like best painted army that year. I can't. I, I wish I could say what year it was. I remember. Uh, I remember that he had his picture taken with it, and it was really impressive. But certainly, it seemed to take a toll on his vision. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yep i have very recently gotten back into miniature painting for D D, but i was painting my guys when i was playing 40k and i was abysmal at it i think i had like a very few like basic techniques that that seemed to like look good from a distance but didn't hold up to like up close scrutiny oh yeah i definitely my my space marines i painted them entirely green and then I went over them in black to give them like tiger stripes. So they were they were camo space marines. Oh, nice, nice. I mean, like at, at this age though, I can't imagine like painting uh, miniatures without like some kind of magnifying glass mounted on an arm, <clears throat> like something that you probably have in a forensics lab. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'm I'm 23 and I've even considered like, do I need the magnifying glass? <laughs> I've seen it on Amazon. I'm like, that's not a bad price. I, I could get one of those. But you're working without the magnifying glass right now? No, I'm wor- I'm working without the magnifying glass. That's brave. That's brave. <laughs> All right, so with that first question, you actually answered my next two questions. What was your first game and what was your first character? So we will move on now to uh, kind of describe the play style that you have, both as a player and as a GM. Um, okay, I'll start with a I'll start with as a player because I think um, my experience in that is is uh, much more narrow, and therefore my answer should be more concise. Um, I, I do I do the D, I do most of the DMing for my various uh, friends, so I don't, I don't often get to to be a player. Right now, I've I am doing one game where I'm playing a lawful good cleric, whose character uh, whose sort of personality is based on Chris Traeger from Parks and Rec. <laughs> He's lawful good life domain has like almost no offensive capability has the has the luck feat because he thinks everything just generally works out in his favor and it's I'm finding that I'm kind of chafing <laughs> with this character because uh, I, I remember like when I was a kid like I mentioned I'm I, like a, I'm a scrawny ish adult I was even a scrawnier kid so like being able to be a minotaur when I'm like however old like 13 or 14 and being able to annihilate my enemies was not something that i had experience with in real life and i think that generally people even among my friends 
they like to play characters that allow them to do things that they don't get to do in real life. And for me, it was for, for a change to be the big, imposing, physically threatening person. Like, to, for once, I was the bully on the playground. Um, so that that's kind of been my play style. I've had a few characters where they've either been fighters or, or barbarians. Um, but I'm trying to switch it up because I, I acknowledged that that was kind of how I played. I like to approach a problem, try to problem solve uh, in a way that the DM, I think, will appreciate. But there's part of me that is always just on the precipice of like, I just want to smash this person <laughs> or I just want to break down this door. But this cleric is uh, that I'm playing is, is very he, he's not an imposing figure. He's very agreeable, almost to a fault. <laughs> so it's been a real a real change of pace for me. Um, in terms of my style as as a dungeon master, I, I find that a bit harder to to qualify. Um, I'll say that I do like um, very story driven games. Um, I like to think that I try to incorporate um, sort of difficult character choices in some ways, but I feel like I feel like my success in that particular area is, is kind of limited. Um, but I'm really I do like to try to, to put as much decision making power in the hands of the group as much as I can. Um, I remember in not the current campaign that I'm running, but the last campaign, there was this entire uh, sort of subplot that I had, this sort of political subterfuge, uh, like a, a, a coup that was about to take place that they inadvertently completely negated with their actions. And I, I kind of like that because um, I didn't tell them that. I think if they're listening to this, that's probably the first they'll they'll hear about it. Um, but uh, sometimes I, I have a problem that I don't know how to solve, and I just trust that they'll think of something to solve uh, that that particular issue. Uh, and there's going to be a, a point in the campaign now, and like in the podcast, where a certain problem becomes clear, and I have no idea how they will solve it. I don't know if you've listened to like the, the behind the screen episodes yet. I am. I'm actually woefully behind on every podcast, but I'm, I'm behind on yours. Okay. So, um, I, like, I, I think I've got five episodes right now, uh, where I just, where it's just me talking. I'm sort of talking about things that have happened versus what I expected to happen. Uh, sort of how I'm like adjusting to what the players have done, and the like the fourth one of these episodes, um, I think I, I think I put it out last month in March sometime. It may have been earlier than that, where I, I like to that up to up until then I had been hinting that there was this really big twist. There's been a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of world building, to accomplish one big turn that the players uh, may not may not see coming. I want I want them to be able to see it coming at one point, but uh, well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, so in, in one of these, in, in the fourth of behind the screen episode, I've laid out exactly what that turn happens to be. And once that happens, I have not planned a single thing beyond that because I genu genuinely have 
zero clue how they're going to tackle a problem of that size. And a lot of it's going to do with their decision making up until up until that point. Well, yeah, I've I've queued up all of your episodes right behind each other now. So for the next couple days, I will figure out what that twist is. <laughs> and I'm sure I will I will message you and be like, you're not going to do that. No way. <laughs> you're well, you're going to be you're going to be sick of my voice, I think, within a day. But uh, I, I mean, I've. I've gotten some positive feedback like on 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 Facebook I have a group like a closed group for people who want to discuss like all the spoilers just like away from the main page uh for the podcast and away from like just talking about it in general where it could spoil it for anyone um or where where one of my players could see it which would be a a disaster <laughs> um and I've gotten some good feedback on like within that group, uh, we've got about 40 members in there so far. And, uh, and they, they have said that it's, that it's ambitious and, and, uh, interesting in the way that I'm, I'm tying so many different threads together, whether or not I'm successful remains to be seen. So, um, my ambition may exceed my competence. So I think we'll find uh, time will tell. I think, I, I think I'm in the, the DMS group. I think I am. If I'm not, then I'm gonna join as soon as we're done with this podcast. That would be that would be amazing. Um, yeah, I'm 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 kind of still surprised that like anybody has joined at all, and that anybody feels uh, compelled to participate and and give feedback on that. I just think that's so cool, especially considering the number of of these types of podcasts that are out there. So moving on to the next uh, quick opening question. Uh, tell me about the most fun game you've ever played in or run yourself? Um, so I think, I think the most fun I had, it was, it was the first time that I had run any game of, of fifth edition. It wasn't that long ago. And I had sort of strong, I don't want to say strong armed, but I had implored a group of friends to, to try this game. Cause I had, it had been a while, like fourth edition was sort of, seemed like a distant memory fifth edition had come out and i was hearing great great things about it and i was like well this seems like something that i should really check out so i i bought the core rule books and i i got a group of i think six friends together and i i made like this short campaign i believe it was maybe five or six sessions where it was a a death trap dungeon um, where they were uh, sort of racing against, it was like they they were a team racing against other team members to get to the center of this maze, where the, supposedly there was a big prize. Spoiler: there was no prize. Um, <laughs> uh, but the entire the entire maze was set to kill them. Like it was, they knew going in that it was a death trap, and a lot of the traps that I put in were completely absurd they were not like some some yeah sure there's a trip wire and something like that but i remember reading on on reddit someone's version of a a, a bear trap which is that like a, a ceiling panel drops a live angry bear onto the person who steps onto the bear trap <laughs> so it was completely absurd and cartoonish uh but it was it was a lot of fun and we were just acclimating to the rules so we weren't taking it too seriously everyone knew that it was going to be a ridiculous game and uh so they just had 
these preposterous characters. But I, I think the only thing I regret about that one is that for, for a Death Trap dungeon, it was remarkably non-fatal. I think only one character dropped to like actually came close to dying because he had he had the horn of blasting and that magic item has a a chance of catastrophic failure where it deals damage to the person blowing it so this guy uses the horn of blasting and it it essentially nearly took his head off um but that that was the most fun it just it was just completely inane over the top um just just foolishness yeah, if your if your death trap dungeon didn't kill enough people, don't be surprised if over the next month or so, just all your dice ones, it's Gygax. He's upset with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think it probably would have been more, maybe more fun if one or two of them had died and been able to um, make new characters. But uh, you know, that's 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 how it goes. People got fond of of the characters that they were playing and. Uh, maybe in hindsight, on the other hand, basically everyone, including myself, was new to 5th edition at that point. So, you know, to, to be getting familiar with a certain character and class in a new type of game that you're just learning the rules of, it may not have been the best thing for them to suddenly have to learn a new character in class mid-stride. So. And uh, kind of switching gears here a little bit, uh, tell me about the least fun game you've ever played or run. Hmm. The least fun. Um, I want to say I want to say it was a long fourth edition campaign that I played, and I think it was not as not as fun as it should have been because of my own I, I think shortcomings, my own uh, immaturity as as a DM at that point. Um, fourth edition, as many people know, is is essentially uh like it's it's a it's a very tactical tabletop game um we try we tried to run it for a couple sessions without a grid and kind of gave up because it's it seems to be it seems to like it strongly favors a, a grid obviously but um the the frustrations from from that campaign sort of came came from one one player who is my best friend, uh, still, still to this day, my best friend. We've known each other since since kindergarten. But he insisted on playing this game, this this D and D campaign, like it was a video game, um, which I was not prepared for. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, at a pivotal moment, decided to to switch to evil. Again, uh, I should have seen the writing on the wall in hindsight, but I didn't. So, um, the other two players thought that hey, it might be fun to be evil. But they were not the type of evil that you can plan around. They're very chaotic evil. Like it was very difficult for me, and to the point where uh, it, I almost took an adversarial mindset um, in the campaign. And so it was. It seemed to be just sort of this constant battle of me versus the players, where instead I should have just had a talk with them and saying, like, you know, if you're going to be evil, cool. I want to make this fun. Uh, but you're supposedly serving this evil deity who has a system of rules that you are behaving uh, uh, like behavior doesn't map map up with the, the god that you're supposedly worshiping. So I think even now, uh, uh, after geez, how long ago was that? I don't know, four or five years of having been DMing pretty consistently for four or five years, I would be very hesitant to try to run an evil campaign even now. 
so it was I still had a lot of fun and and the the players had I think for for most of it had had a good time uh being being the bad guys uh but it was it was a struggle for me to try to anticipate what they might do next because they did not make it easy. <laughs> All right, and then this is the last of the introductory questions, and we'll dive into some deeper stuff here in just a little bit. Um, I stole this one from my co-host on Digital Men, Brent. Thank you for this question. It's gold. You can answer this as silly or as philosophical as you want. If you could put one thing on a T-shirt, Tim, what would it be? I I listened to like your your introductory episode for this, so I knew that this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> But it didn't make it any easier, and I was I was asking my wife, I'm like, what would you put on a T-shirt if you could put anything on a T-shirt? And uh, to uh, yeah, I, I couldn't think of anything really profound, so I I just was kind of I had just like recently finished watching The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Do you ever do you ever watch that? Yep. So um, I, I I enjoyed a lot of parts of it. So I think my T-shirt would say. Alfred in the streets, Ragnar in the sheets. <laughs> nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. We've had, on, on Digital Men, we've had um, super philosophical answers. Um, the lady who discovered Rush as a, as a DJ said uh, she came, she saw, she kicked their butts. And then the lead singer and lead guitar player of Them Evils, who's a great band and you should all listen to, he said, play guitar and suck titties. <laughs> if you have kids listening to the show, I'm sorry. That's what he said. It was great. When he and I met in person uh, a couple months ago, I reminded him of that, and he laughed, and it's an iconic moment. I, I feel like my T-shirt uh, design is, is lacking all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so... Shifting gears here, uh, kind of moving away from D&D a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about you, Tim, because this will get us back into a discussion I want to have about D&D. Um, so you were a writer. Uh, you, you say that at the beginning of all your episodes, uh, getting people to go visit your Amazon shop, which we will plug at the end of this show. How did you get into writing? Um, well, I've, for a long time, like I've been, I've enjoyed creative writing. Um, uh, I really enjoy, like in, in high school, we had creative writing classes and I recall there were a few writing competitions that in high school that I entered and I, I won, uh, certain, uh, categories. I think humor was, was one of them where I actually got paid money, which was like, it totally blew my mind that, uh, that I was like, oh my god! I just made this dumb article about George W. Bush, and then like, <laughs> and and because uh, you know, The Onion was a big thing with uh, with me and my my high school friends uh, at, at that point in time. And I was like, I got money for these stupid words that I put down. Like, what what is what is the world even like? What is going on? Um, and you know, in in university, I took uh, I studied English and uh, philosophy and, and history, and so with that comes many essays, many many essays, um, and kind of have always just been interested in, in not necessarily just writing but storytelling. Really like really enjoying 
knowing what makes a good story and, and enjoying other people's great stories. Um, so I think there was a, there was a point, I think it was, must have been 2014 or 2015 where I was, you know, working, working a regular day job in a, in a call center that was not, uh, not fulfilling in certain ways. You know, it was, it was a, it was a decent job, uh, but it was not, uh, meeting my, like the hierarchy of needs near closer to the top of that hierarchy were not being met. Hmm. So I was looking into certain things like uh, like doing editing for work or like freelance writing or technical writing, uh, copywriting, things like that. And then I, I started listening to this podcast called Writing Excuses, where it is, I believe, four authors, um, one of whom is Brandon Sanderson. He's a pretty prominent fantasy writer. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I the names of the other three hosts escape me, but one was a I think a Hugo, either a Hugo or a Nebula award-winning science fiction writer, and I read some of her stuff and it was really fantastic. And they're talking about the stuff that they're writing, and I was like, holy crap! Like these these people are just talking about their own careers, and I found it to be like really motivating. Um, and the advice that they gave uh, in in a lot of ways was very very clear and, and helpful. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try, I'm going to try that. Why not? Uh, so I wrote, I wrote one story that turned out to be, um, about a hundred thousand words. And I, I was fully anticipating that this story would really go nowhere and I never showed it to anyone. <laughs> so I, I spent, uh, I don't know, maybe six or eight months writing that. And just, just so I could get the, like the practice of, of starting, a story and finishing it. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I had another idea that turned into the uh, three books that I have on Amazon right now. Um, I, I wish I could remember. Oh yes. I remember I was reading, I was reading a history book about, um, about Rome and a conquest of, and a siege of a, a, a particular city. Um, and in, in this city were, was a, um, I don't know if a temple is the correct word, but a, a, a sacred site to which was a, a set of golden doors. Like the, the doors to this place were made of, of gold. And I was like, can you imagine like being like finding those things and your, your commanding officer comes and tells you, Hey, we have these gigantic monolithic slabs of, of the most valuable uh, substance. We want you and a bunch of people to take it back, like march it, march it, back through our territory to to Rome or, or something. I don't, I, don't, I don't know actually what they did with it, mm-hmm. with those doors. But I could imagine that that journey, uh, such a hypothetical journey would be very fraught with betrayal and, and complications. And so that was kind of the, this, the initial seed of the idea for what turned into that, that trilogy. Gotcha. And uh, it, it sounds like you and I are very similar. Uh, you, you studied history and philosophy and English when you were in university. I just graduated with a BA in philosophy, and uh, I was a history major for a semester, actually two semesters. So I'm I'm right there with you. I, I love me some philosophy and some history. Yeah, man, it, it can't go wrong. Like honestly, some of the some of the most um, memorable and I think instructive. Um, classes I had were philosophy classes. It really, I think though, I honestly, part of me thinks that, uh, I don't want to say mandatory. I don't want to say people should 
mandatorily have to do something. I would strongly recommend that people study philosophy because it, it really teaches the critical thinking, how to identify what makes a good sound argument and what doesn't. I think that should be part of like elementary or middle school education, personally. Just that basic figure out what these arguments are because that's, I mean, that was part of my uh, middle school education when I was in sixth grade. I had a professor, or not a professor, a, a teacher actually walk us through logical fallacies and argument structure and all that, and it was very helpful. Oh, nice. I, I don't think, I don't recall getting that in in uh, any point in my education before before post-secondary, so. And then I, and we'll get back to you. This, this is terrible. I was about to say, we'll get back to you in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I just want to tell you, I'm also, I'm an aspiring writer myself. And so hearing you talk about this is really cool for me and for anyone else out there who's also an aspiring writer. Yeah, I think the, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting time because like the tools have never been more readily available in, in not only writing, but in like so many different creative mediums. Like the, the real, I think the real challenge, um, apart from the writing itself, which is, you know, uh, takes practice. It's really like the, the the challenge that I've faced is is just standing out in like among the countless other people who are, you know, doing the same thing. Something that I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> at this point. And uh moving on from there, who is your your favorite writer of all time? Who would you say that is? Ooh. Oh my goodness. That's a that's a tough one. I'm just kind of lo- like craning my neck looking at my bookshelf right now. Well, I mean, I'll I'll sort of list some recent ones. It, it's it's tough for me to to, to pick an all time favorite because you know sometimes I feel like oh, I don't want to read a fiction. Some like, I I want to read a nonfiction book. Um, you know sometimes I'm like I I don't want to read cold hard facts about history. I want to read something like some some kind of escapism. Um, I I'm about I'm I'm currently reading. Uh, Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch right now, uh, which is the second book. It's a sequel to The Lies of Locke Lamora, which is a, a you know, it's a fantasy series about this group of thieves, and it's really, really entertaining and, and very well written. Um, I'm working my way through a trilogy. Um, I believe it's called The Culture Trilogy by Ian M. Banks. And essentially, it's a s- three stories um, that they're not connected. Uh, they're, maybe it's more of what you might consider an anthology, but these three separate stories that uh, that take place within what's known as the culture. And the culture is this um, hyper advanced uh, r- race, if I can use that word, or or, or um, group of of artificial intelligence um machines and and they sort of absorb different worlds into their realm of influence and they're so hyper advanced that they they bestow their technology uh upon the worlds that join them and and it eliminates things like um shortages of of food and water like labor is to a large extent, no longer necessary. Uh, people can have like these 
crazy advanced modifications to their bodies where they can just at the thought like have these glands that inject psychotropic drugs into their system uh so everyone it, it's it's almost like a utopia um and the second book was called player of games and it's specifically about one guy who's a member of this of the culture and his thing is that he plays games all sorts of games from all different worlds and he learns about this far, far distant planet that is not a part of the culture yet. And their entire civilization, their hierarchy, their society, all of it is based on the results of a game that everybody plays. And he cannot help himself but go out there and try to learn this absurdly complicated game. And it's just a fascinating read because I've never read a book before that uh, – that is that the focal point of which is a game that sounds extremely interesting i'm gonna need to give that a try i i really recommend and like the just just the the sort of fanciful like far future concepts that uh, that are in these books is really really entertaining i've tried some hard science fiction and i'm not i'm not so good with that um i was reading uh seven eves uh oh who wrote that I believe it's the same author who wrote Snow Crash. Um, basically, it's about the Earth coming to an end uh, by way of a sudden, um, sudden astrological like impacts. Like the moon essentially breaks apart and and collides with Earth and, and annihilates all life on on Earth. So it's a it's about the International Space Station essentially being retrofitted to support life. Uh, on a continuous basis for for basically hundreds of years until the earth is once again suitable for people to go back down and live there again and it was a hard hard science fiction book and i was you know i probably should not be trying to read that sort of stuff when i'm trying to like when i'm just going to bed because <laughs> it's like man like what what is going on like this is just so mentally like you know, it's, it's super engaging but it's also very, like goes into great, great detail about the plausibility of of that kind of scenario. Neil Stevenson is that guy's name. Thank you. I just looked it up. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I mean, uh, I think Patrick Rothfuss is a is a fantastic writer. Uh, just his just his like his his prose in uh, in his first. I, I haven't read the Slow Regard of Silent Things yet. But some moments from the name of the wind and the wise man's fear uh, were 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 genuinely moving. I mean, I could go on, but uh, but short answer, short answer. I can't narrow it down to one man. I'm sorry. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Mine, mine is Jim Butcher. I'm a huge fan of Jim Butcher, and I just got my wife to pick up the Dresden Files books for the first time, and she loves them too. So. I've heard so much about the Dresden Files. Like, how many how many books are in that series at this point? Oh God, there are, I believe there are currently fifteen, with the sixteenth on the way. That is crazy. I can't imagine mm -hmm. having that many ideas. <laughs> they are they're a very quick read though. Like they're they're regular like fantasy novel size, but they are. For some reason, just the way he writes, it's just it's a it's a very breezy read, and it's very very engaging, a lot of fun. 
if you love urban fantasy and you haven't read it, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> is there a role-playing game uh, based yes, on that there too? Is. Yeah, there's a Dresden Files role-playing game. All right, I'm glad I wasn't imagining that. Um, I mean, just just speaking of urban fantasy, I I uh, and this is kind of timely. There's a there's a new TV series that just I don't know if it's actually out yet or or they're just showing uh, previews for it on YouTube, but it's called The Rook and the the premise is if i could describe the I, like the description it would be like if somebody said what's this book like i would say it's like the born identity plus hp lovecraft plus monty pythons would be the way i would describe it but the it, it's about this this um woman who's a a high powered operative in a secret government agency that monitors terrestrial and interdimensional monstrosities you might call them or oddities uh and she wakes up without her memory and only a series of clues left by her to herself before she lost her memory trying to warn her as to who might be out after like out to get her so it's super fascinating and it's genuinely hilarious yeah i'll need to check that out uh, just doing a little bit of quick research on it. Apparently, it's coming to stars here in the. Do you guys have stars? I don't know if we can get a subscription to stars in Canada. Because I know, like, you guys have different premium channels than we do a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the differentiation, uh, the reasoning for that, escapes me. But uh, but yeah, I. Uh, um, I mean, I would be I would be so tempted to to look into that. But there's a. Uh, like we we right now have Netflix and Prime, and I th we don't have enough hours in the day to justify getting any, anything else at this point. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got Prime, Hulu, Netflix, and I have DC Universe. And now the Disney thing's coming up, and we're seeing all this Disney stuff, and they canceled all the Marvel stuff on Netflix. So uh, my wife and I are actually discussing canceling Netflix in favor of this new Disney streaming service. Yeah, I mean, I saw some some pictures from The Mandalorian, um, that show that's going to be on their streaming service, the one about the uh, the bounty hunter. Uh, I'm very interested in that. And the, and the, uh, the promise of having all of the Star Wars and Marvel movies on that streaming service as well. It's very, very tempting. Now, uh, tying the, the writing and the D&D &D back together, um, we have all heard... And some of us, I'm sure, have been subject to horror stories of the DM who's a writer. So let me ask you the question. Have you ever fallen into those traps? Um, maybe. I, I, don't, I, I, I try not to, to go uh, like out searching for too many horror stories, but could you, could you give me an example of one? And then maybe I'll be uh, better equipped to answer. A lot of times, uh, have you ever been to the subreddit r slash RPG horror stories? Uh, once or twice. All right, so... A lot of those stories, you'll you'll get the DM who will say that he's a writer and this is this is the world of his his book that he's playing you through, and they'll get down to where they're going to kill an enemy or a character, and he'll go, no, 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 you can't do that. I need them later. Oh, I see, I see. So, like treat, treating treating his campaign as as though it's uh, sacrosanct. Yep. Um, and then also his OC ends up being the, the, the main character of the campaign instead of the actual players. Okay. 
Um, I hope not. I don't think I have. I, I don't think I have. I'm I'm sort of of the mindset where I mean I've I think I've made some some missteps in terms of what I did and did not allow. I think if anything I might be too like too lenient in some ways, and I've actually been like been called out for like maybe putting my hand in to prevent some some punishment from befalling the characters when they actually earned it. Um, I hope not, but you know what? I'll I'll get my I'll ask my uh, I'll ask my current party, and I I will uh, I will let you know, and maybe maybe we can like add it as a footnote. Um, I, I I learned uh, pretty early on that if you're going to put an enemy in front of in front of your players, get ready for that enemy to die. Um, that happened. I don't want to spoil too much for you. Uh, I don't know how far up you're on. Did you get to the episode with the doppelganger? Um, I just finished the first episode where they're out of the Underdark. Okay, all right. So, okay. So I I did not expect them to engage with that character very much. I was just trying to, like, like put a few breadcrumbs down to bring, to bring this doppelganger sort of spy slash assassin onto their tail later. And I was just trying to, like, plant the seed that, that this person might be out there looking for them. But they they chose to not only confront this character, but also manage to s- suss out that something was wrong, and then and then killed him right away. And I was not <laughs> I was not anticipating for that to happen. I was like, oh, damn! Like I had this whole sheet written up. I don't want to say a whole sheet. I have a few paragraphs typed up about like um, what I might expect them to do based on his character because i wrote that he was like supremely overconfident that he had he had never failed in his tasks before and and like was sort of anticipating that they might try to turn the tables and use his overconfidence against him at some point way down the road but they they just kind of cornered him and uh i suppose it's probably my fault because uh i mean in a way i was prepared for that to happen but i just didn't expect it yeah so i'm I'm, I'm I'm I try to 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 not have and and like I mentioned before they there was this, that entire subplot from a previous campaign that got uh, you know that I put some work into and they just kind of managed to just by some planning and some some luck like circumvent that that entire thing and I I was like okay well it no longer makes sense for me to include this in the game so I'm not going to force it even though I thought it was super cool. So I'll just, you know, I'll just tuck that away for maybe some future game. Yeah, I, I just want to take this time, because you mentioned your players killing a character that was supposed to be a, a menace later on. Just advice to all of you out there planning a campaign. Do not reveal the badass assassin, head of the Assassin's Guild character, until they are after your characters. Because I made that mistake too, and the damn cleric did a divine intervention and turned him into a statue. <laughs> that sounds like something a cleric would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. It was you know it was it was a really fun episode, and they I think they had a lot of there's still still some some jokes, some some offhanded comments that they make about that particular encounter. Uh, and then there was a uh, an encounter that they had with I, I shouldn't say an encounter a very close call with a much tougher opponent that they I don't want to spoil anything but I I 
had planned was like thinking to myself i i do want them to have some interactions with with this enemy even if it's not combat but i i kind of gave them the option or the opportunity the choice to potentially run into him and knowing that they might run into him they did it anyways and and i was at that point ready for for them to kill him i thought well you know what they might kill him they might just talk to him i don't know turns out neither really happened which is you know still was a lot of fun um but uh but yeah anytime anytime that an enemy goes in front of a group of players someone is going to attack some like one of the players will be like i've had enough of this and then the attacks are going to the knives will come out it's like the the rule where with like a Star Wars RPG you don't put Darth Vader in front of your players. I you know what I had I had a Star Wars role playing game I can't re- like this was this was years years and years ago and I I can't even remember what kind of system it operated on I think it was all D sixes mm-hmm. the D six Star Wars game I've, I've not played it but read through it it was uh yeah no I I couldn't even conceive about trying to run Darth Vader as as a as an immature teenager. Yeah, continuing on the, the talking about uh being a writer and a DM as well. Have you ever run a group through one of the worlds from one of your your books? I haven't. Um I haven't and I I don't know for some reason I'm kind of kind of hesitant to do that. Um I, I I don't know if I can like provide a really great explanation as to as to why why I feel that way. Um, I feel like my I feel like the settings of my books are maybe they don't lend themselves terribly well to how how diverse of a game D and D can be. Um, like the, the the sort of setting of my book, there's a lot of I want to say mature themes uh, to it, uh, like co- colonial expansion. Um, uh, is is a is a major part of it, like religious uh, intolerance, uh, racism is a is a is a main uh, factor in what the main character uh, faces, and so I I it would seem it would seem like all of those themes would put a big damper on on what would other, should otherwise be a, like a fun a fun game. Not saying that that you can't run a D and D campaign that doesn't have like serious serious themes and and mature themes that get taken seriously by your players i just don't think that i'm i'm i like to have my campaigns be as open and malleable as as possible so that if the players want to make it sort of a, you know a goofy sort of uh if they want to have their characters act <laughs> You know, in a in a in a sort of slapstick way, you know, I I I want to sort of give them an environment in which that's possible. Although I will say, I did get an email from from someone who did suggest that I write up like a like a, a setting guide for that book, and I was very flattered. Somebody who had read the trilogy, and I was very flattered. But I, uh, yeah, I think for those reasons, I'm I'm very standoffish to do that. I'm currently running my players, and they don't know this. Well, actually, I think. One of them does. Um, I'm running them through a world in which I want to write books, but I'm I don't have these books yet, 
So I'm basically just letting them break everything and seeing like what what needs to be fleshed out, what doesn't. And I'm, I'm just kind of letting them explore as much of it as they want and kind of making it as they explore it. Just I, I'm using my party to world build essentially. Well, I, yeah, that's that's a great that's a great uh, uh, set of resources is, is these players who, you know, want, you know, uh, they're curious about what they can learn and how it might affect their characters and how their characters can influence the world. And so uh, I find that even uh, even now I get questions uh, that, you know, hey, does you know, who, who is this person aligned with? You know, is there a black market for this substance here? These are questions that I got just last night from from our most recent recording session. And you get questions uh, for for things that you would never have thought about yourself. And that's really I mean, there's I, I think the there's a there's a rather I don't know if it's a well-known term, but world builders disease or world building disease where you just can't stop world building to the point where you never actually start writing your story. But having having people sort of immersed in your world and asking questions that you never thought to ask is, I mean, that's a huge boon, I think, for any, uh, for any DM and for any writer. And uh, next question I have, uh, kind of switching gears, we're going to start talking about the, the podcast now. What was it that made you want to start Knights and Nerds? Uh, well, I had I had this idea for campaign, and it was very complex. And I, I, uh, I, despite its complexity, I was like, this is I was really excited, really, really excited about it. Uh, and and I was like, you know what? Like, I've benefited from all these different resources that are on the internet, like um, the videos that uh, Matt Colville puts out. Uh, there's another YouTube series. Uh, I believe the YouTube channel is called Monarchs Factory, but the person who does it, her name is Dale Kingsmill. She does some really uh, interesting videos that I've found to be super insightful. The various uh, like subreddits for for D and D, and I was like, you know what? I've I've benefited from all of this readily available wisdom. What I am not seeing a ton of is somebody showing how it can be practically applied or, or giving actual examples to a campaign that is ongoing. And I mean, whether or not I've been super successful with that, I think is, is up to debate. Um, I think the, the real core of why I wanted to do it was for that reason, because I, as you had mentioned before, there is, there's a ton of actual play podcasts out there. It's a, it is a very crowded space, but to my knowledge, nobody was doing that type of uh type of campaign or that type of podcast and so i mean despite the despite the drawbacks that come with uh choosing to to record you know i i made sure everybody's on board i was like you know do you want to does everybody feel like doing this um you know just despite the various hardships that come along with with recording I, you know everybody was pretty excited about it and um i'm i'm really excited to to sort of get to that point that I mentioned, that big turn, and to see whether or not I was successful in the the things that I've been trying to do, to foreshadow just enough, but not too much that I just give like the answers. So that was really why I wanted to do it, because I, I thought, you know, it would be perhaps helpful for other like beginner DMs 
and the fact that, uh, again, that I didn't know of any other podcast that was doing the same thing. Maybe there is uh, another podcast out there that's that's doing it. It's, it's entirely it's entirely possible. So I don't want to claim ownership that I came up with that idea. You're the first one that I've heard. Uh, however, uh, Matt Colville totally stole your thunder because now he has his campaign that he puts on YouTube. And it's a lot of the same stuff that he's been talking about on his uh, his videos. Colville! So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I know that he like does his campaign diaries, um, which I found to be pretty entertaining. Um, but like the the sort of behind the screen episodes that I do uh, aren't just that. Like to my I don't know maybe he's doing it uh, now, but uh, I I don't know that his campaign diaries sort of encapsulated what he was planning to do or what like the overarching goal of the entire campaign was perhaps perhaps that's now what he's what he's doing i haven't watched any of his uh like newer uh streams so i'm a bit dark i'm a bit in the dark as to as to what's going on in that regard but uh uh i mean i can't uh i can't claim ownership of an idea so if other people uh whether whether they're famous or not, I will take imitation as a form of flattery. <laughs> so far, I don't think he's like revealed any major like actual things that are going to happen upcoming in his campaign. I don't think he wants to spoil any of the surprises for the people watching the campaign itself. So I think you've got him there. Can I? You've actually revealed your plans. I have, and can I? I've I've been sort of holding one back here. Uh, if I can reveal, like, this will be a Rolling Bones exclusive. Uh, like, I've been very candid, like, in those behind-the-screen episodes and in the DM group on Facebook. But there has been one twist that I have not told anyone about. That <laughs> that I – and this is the first time I've ever mentioned it. I haven't even mentioned it in the, in the DM group saying, oh, hey, by the way, there's this other secret that will be revealed at, at some point – uh, so there's there's a there's a, a hidden twist that I think when it comes about I'm not even going to mention it in in the podcast, um, like in my other behind the screen episodes. So this is this I think will be the only place where I mention that there is a another secret uh, surprise that I've been holding close to the vest this entire time. All right, nice episode <laughs> one, and we already have a Rolling Bones exclusive. <laughs> so. Uh... You kind of already answered my, my next question, which is going to be, how did your players react to the podcast thing? Uh, so moving on, the pun names. Did that happen organically, or is that someone's idea? Um, <laughs> uh, amazingly, it was not a group plan. Oh my god. I, I know. <laughs> um, well, uh, two, two of the players, I, well, Matt and Candace, they play... Spruce Lee and Fiance, respectively, they're they're husband and wife, so it's entirely likely that um, one of them came up with a celebrity D and D name, and the other one thought I should do that as well. When we had our sit down to to do like a session zero, which we stupidly didn't record, we were just kind of talking about sort of the the general world and, and a bit of background details, so that they could go into our first session. Uh, sort of already having a background knowledge of, of of the setting. When we first sat down to do that, uh, Tom, who plays the rogue, came in as Gilly Crystal, <laughs> unplanned, unprompted, with with no 
forewarning about um like that the other two had celebrity D&D pun names also. And at that point, uh Katie who plays Vanna um felt as though she should not not buck the trend and <laughs> and uh came up with uh Vanna Vanna White Helsing who is a I think a minor celebrity <laughs> Vanna mm-hmm. White was trying to keep keeping it in keeping with the monster slayer theme. Yeah, she got two for the price of one there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh <laughs> that's hilarious that that was completely organic <laughs> or almost completely organic. Almost 100%, yeah. Yeah, to to my amazement. And it really told it really informed me about what to expect from from this from this particular cabal of misfits. Cuz I remember listening to your episode, your 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 first session and uh i feel like it was i think it was matt that went first and said spruce lee and i went oh he's that guy and then i heard everyone else's name and i went wait they're all they're all that guy yeah yeah welcome to your nightmare (laughs) i mean i i love puns i make them as often as i can but just like they all have pun names and it's like they're stuck with it now i don't know if they fully grasped the uh the implications of that when we started yeah, it's one of those. There's this comic I saw one time. It was, um, I, I don't remember who did it. One of my friends sent it to me, but it shows this character, and he's like, "My name is." And he gives a full like fantasy name. Call me Slappy for short. I'm a barbarian who was raised by clowns, and it's this whole thing. Like I have uh, twelve pies, banana cream. They are on my sheet. I have. Uh, it's like the the improvised weapon feat, I think it is. So I'm using these as my improvised weapons, and the DM's like, "Uh, okay." And then it's like session two hundred, and Slappy's like missing an eye, holding the door open for someone in a dungeon. He's like, "Go, go!" And they're like, "No, Slappy, not without you." And one of them's like, "Slappy, I." And he goes, "I know, I've always known." And then the door falls on him. <laughs> yeah, I. uh... In that Death Trap dungeon I, I, I mentioned to you, one of the competing teams was a team of clowns who threw pies as weapons. Oh my god. <laughs> but the pies had like various hazardous objects in them, like bricks or like broken glass. So they weren't just meringue, they were they were a bit deadlier. Had you just watched The Warriors when you put that together? <laughs> no, like the eighties movie? Yeah. I have not seen The Warriors. Gotcha. <laughs> Because I I put together an entire session based on the Warriors. I made my players... uh, They were in the middle of a city right as this group was revolting against this empire. And they then had to get out of the city. And so they had like six different gangs trying to kill them. It was one of the most fun sessions we ever ran. And only one of my players had seen the Warriors. So the entire time he was making jokes about it. (laughs) <laughs> uh i mean that sounds that sounds um in- incredibly uh compelling um did uh were like were they successful in making it out yeah yeah they made it out oh, nice nice and uh am i right in in saying that you you're married to one of the players in the game right i'm married to katie yeah who plays gotcha Vanna. yeah so i have just started a campaign i am teaching my wife how to play D&D. I'm also teaching our housemate, and then uh, two of their friends have a little bit of experience, but not much. So 
how do you handle DMing a campaign with your wife as one of the players? Um, honestly, like it's, I don't think it, I don't think it comes up very much as as an obstacle. Um, she she has a lot of fun uh, uh, playing and, and recording, though I would I would not call her like a, a hardcore D and D uh, fanatic the way that uh, the way that I am. Uh, so I I uh, yeah I, I don't think I have any any hesitation with harshness. I mean, there's been a couple times where she has. Um, been in very like I shouldn't. Her character has been in very difficult uh, situations, um, so it's and her character also is is uh, I think the the quietest one of the group. Her character she she wanted to base a character on. I'm going to tiptoe very carefully here in case she listens to this, but s- certain aspects of her own personality, a general uh, <laughs> a general dislike for for the for the public. <laughs> I don't want to say full on misanthropic, but it's in that mm. neighborhood. <laughs> um, uh, very outdoorsy, prefers the company of animals. All of these things can be said about either my wife or about the ranger in the group. And so she, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure the same probably goes with many other people who are recording is, is that there's, there's a certain level of self-consciousness about, you know, am I going to be funny Am I going to say something dumb uh, or am I going to be boring? So she kind of positioned herself in such a way where she doesn't, her character doesn't want to say very much is very sort of stern and and stoic, which is, I think how she, she likes to sort of observe what, what's going on. And then when the time is right, make a decisive comment about usually saying, I think we should kill this person. Yeah, that's something I found. I've only done a session zero with my wife so far, and uh, she's taking to the game really well. The only thing I'm afraid of is, again, if you think about the horror stories, there's that that trope, that kind of specter hanging over a lot of D&D of the, the DM's girlfriend or the, the girl the DM likes. I have heard such horror stories, yes. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that, that my... Uh that my wife and the rest of the players are like, they're all mature enough that they can, that we can, if there's aspects of the games that, that we dislike, we can have a, a totally normal conversation about it outside the game. And I actually do like frequently ask for feedback. Like, Hey, am I like, what sorts of things do you, am I doing right? What's, do you want to see more of what do you want to see less of? Um, I mean, in, in terms of, uh, my relationship, I mean, there's already been, uh, a very, very close call. I think it was episode 13 where I think Vanna came very close to death. <laughs> um, if not for Spruce Lee's unorthodox administering of a healing potion shortly thereafter, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And just just a side note, like we're all in our 30s, and we still find that sort of humor to be like, like still makes us chuckle. I don't oh, yeah. I don't know what that says about us, but uh, I, I think that that yeah, if if that had been the the way that Vanna met her ending, that uh, boy, I should not have used the word ending in that sort of context, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, that she would have just sort of shrugged and had gone to you know onto making another character. There, there are a couple great moments of your podcast that I vividly remember. 
Um, one of them is the the health potion enema. <laughs> and then the other one, and I still, every time I think about this, I laugh and try not to laugh audibly because if you laugh audibly at nothing, you look like a psychopath. Stabbing a horse in the dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm what I'm considering doing is having now that they're like like now that they're out of the underground and and going to explore the world at large. I'm really hoping that somebody, an NPC, says it to them unprompted so that like they've coined this phrase and it's somehow made it to the surface ahead of them. But yeah, it's it's like stabbing a horse in the door. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, they haven't used it in a while, but they they there are like they they do go back to that sometimes Um you know, dumb little jokes like that just kind of stick. And along with them sort of razzing me about, oh, is this thing written in common or elvish? <laughs> That's another All one. All <laughs> because of one time that I needlessly overcomplicated something, and they latched onto it. And to this day, I think I think they made another comment about it last night. I don't know whether it's going to make the cut like after the editing, but uh, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a burden, all of these things. <laughs> That's one of the greatest if you're on the the joking end of it and the worst if you're on if you're the butt of the joke. One of the best or worst things about D&D are those inner campaign jokes that are only funny to like the people at the table or the people who hear it when it happens in in your case. Like there was one in a campaign that I just finished before we moved. We had a bard who, um, I think she was chaotic. She was either chaotic good or chaotic neutral. But she was haggling with a, uh, she was haggling with a merchant at a music shop. And she was like sixth level trying to get a very expensive, very rare magic item for way less than it was worth. And the DM rightly had the the NPC kind of scoff and put the item away. She dropped a fireball on on the shop. Because why not? And the session ended with that shop exploding. And we actually like there was a there was a legal case because my our DM was running another campaign where two characters were playing lawyers in that same city. So their campaign revolved around getting us off of those charges. <laughs> But throughout that entire time, anything, like any time we referred to that reference just among the group, it was usually my character because I was, I was kind of the, the Vanna White Helsing of that game. I was a very serious, stoic ranger. I was like, Coltarian, you blew up a music shop. And then someone in the group would go, allegedly. <laughs> and so it just kind of became a thing. Anytime someone did something terrible, we'd just go, allegedly. And that, that kind of became our thing. <laughs> The statue thing in the game that I was DMing, that became a running joke, especially because that player has insane luck when it comes to divine intervention and stuff like that. He divine interventioned a a big bad in the campaign that I was playing in out of existence. Yeah, I, I mean, the game provides these just bizarre uh, opportunities, these sort of intersections where... Uh, chance meets uh, meets humor, and I mean you like me as a DM. I could try to be funny if I wanted to, but like my jokes, I don't think will stick as well as something that just kind of uh, happens on its own. Yeah, I mean, I ran a session 
where they were in an arena and all of the gladiators that were in there were pun names based on professional wrestlers. That was not nearly as funny as some of the other stuff that they ended up overturning with with their powers. Especially there was one time um, our paladin, and they were level 18 or 19. They were insanely powerful at this point. This was towards the end of the campaign. Our paladin was out for a session. And so I had this whole thing where he was captured by the enemy. And uh, they had to go find him. I didn't like take anything away from him or anything like that. But he was captured by the enemy. And that session was them finding him, trying to rescue him. The next session, instead of saying, okay, you were captured, nothing serious has happened to you, I haven't taken away any of your items, I said, all right, so here's what happened while you were gone. The problem was the enemies were fiends, and he's a paladin. So everything I was trying, he was just, like, smacking away. He's just like, no, away with you. And so we spent a solid 15 minutes trying to establish that he'd been captured, and finally I just went, okay, Mo, you were captured, and he goes, all right, all right, I we can move on. So when you say like smacking away that he was that he was like fighting fighting these fiends off? Yes. <laughs> like remarkably well. <laughs> I've always wanted to play a paladin that um that goes down fighting like a as sort of like judge dread type of lawful neutral um just, you know, sees evil being done and and just, you know, is unwavering uh, in his uh, attempt to assert uh, the just law or the law of his uh, deity, whatever that happens to be. Maybe the next one. I don't know why I picked a cleric this time when I've always wanted to, get, <laughs> to go down swinging as a paladin. Yeah, that that would be a very interesting character to play. Um, I've always I've always kind of considered, and part of this is I stole it from. Spoonie, have you ever watched any of Spoonie's videos back before he lost his mind? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know who uh, Spoonie is. You'll have to. You'll have to enlighten me. Gotcha. Um, have you ever heard of Channel Awesome? I, I have not. Okay, so Channel Awesome, back in like the early, early days of YouTube and stuff like that, um, there was a guy named Noah Antweiler, aka Spoonie who got famous playing video games, kind of like at the same time, Angry Video Game Nerd and all those early adopters of YouTube for gaming got into it. He got famous at the same time as them. Channel Awesome is a bunch of reviewers of movies and comics and other stuff who all banded together, and he ended up joining with them. But about five or six years ago, he just completely went off the deep end and stopped making videos, and then he started again, but anytime people would ask him questions he didn't like, he'd just fly off the handle again. And so he's kind of like a lost soul of the internet at this point, but he's one of the reasons why I started playing D&D, because he'd make D&D videos. Well, I mean, I, I uh, is Channel Awesome still a thing? Kinda. <laughs> they, they, had, they had controversies of their own very recently. But, like, if you've ever heard of the Nostalgia Critic, he he's the the primary one behind Channel Awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have heard of the Nostalgia Critic. Yeah, him and him and all of his friends are, are who makes up Channel Awesome, and they very recently had some, some issues, and that made me very sad because they're the people who inspired me to make content on the internet, as unsuccessful as I am at it. 
I'm I'm completely in the dark as to I mean I, I could probably guess as to maybe what the issues might be, but I mean for what it's worth, I hope uh, I hope Spoonie's doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. <laughs> I'd love to have him. I'd love to have him on this podcast. That would probably never happen. If he hears this and he wants to come on, Spoonie, I, I'm willing to have you on this podcast to talk about D&D. So uh, another question for you kind of about the podcast thing. Um, we both played a lot of D&D in our times. We both know how the average D&D session goes. So just how much do you have to cut out of the average episode of Nights and Nights? <laughs> um, it varies, but usually we play for... Um... I want to say I want to say we do about two hours of recording, and I'm able to get a good sort of varies between like 45 minutes to an hour of that. Um, I I do like I'm not I'm not super technically proficient with with editing software, um, but I've I, I do listen to everything that we've done, and I I really t- I mean in terms of combat, for example. There's a lot that gets cut out because people, uh, uh, particular um, Matt who plays uh, Spruce Lee, is is incredibly analytical with how he approaches combat, and he wants to like really do the most useful thing all the time, and so he takes I would say probably like more usually at least more like more than a minute to determine what he's going to do. And sometimes he'll take one or two minutes, decide on an action, talk it out and then walk it back and do something else. (laughs) Uh, So there's a lot that gets cut out with combat. Um, You know, I like to, as much as I can, I like to make sure that combat sort of changes so that it's not, it's not a, an unchanging uh, proposition from start to finish that the combat, uh, some elements of it uh, change that force the players to react in certain ways. Um, like some elements maybe of their enemies weren't quite so apparent when they started fighting. Um, an example of this, I think from, I want to say episode six is, uh, 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 they were fighting a death dog and someone cast enlarge on it. So now it's this large sized, uh, death two headed monster dog, which, you know, in terms of mechanics, doesn't make a huge difference on on the opponents that they're facing, but in their mind, it makes it all of a sudden this threat just like literally got twice as big. So I I do try when when it's appropriate to to make combat sort of changing like that, but it has the adverse effect of of you know a player like on round one of initiative may say okay I'm gonna try to, to pull this trick off and then the combat changes and they say, well, I can't do that anymore. And they have to go back and think about what, what they can do to address the new situation. Um, a lot is that gets cut is, um, them sort of trying to come to an agreement for a plan of action. There's a lot of indecision in the group and, Perhaps maybe more than there needs to be, but they're they're I think by nature they're very cautious and indecisive. But uh, but there's a lot of talking that gets that 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 they do to to sort of arrive at a decision. And when I'm listening to it, I have to make the judgment call: like, is this something that people find interesting, 
or not. And um, unless there's some kind of, unless their decision-making process uh, shows a particular side of their character that they're playing, uh, generally, genu generally it's not all that compelling. And I think would slow things down. And I think getting the length of the of the show between like 45 minutes to an hour or so is is kind of what I was hoping for. I, I personally don't have uh, I, I I find it difficult to listen to podcasts that go like longer than an hour and a half. So I, I think I think keeping it shorter does uh, does in some ways work to our favor. Although maybe at some point down the road I'll I'll do like a, a B roll of of stuff that didn't make it in. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, when, I, when I'm playing my sessions and I'm thinking about like what you do, and sometimes I even think about like what they do on critical role where they live stream it. And I'm looking at my session. I'm like, how do people do this? Yeah. Even, even sitting there for uh, what, what is a critical role session? Like it's, it's, it's well over two hours, isn't it? It's, does it go over? Sometimes, I think they go up to four sometimes. Yeah, I mean that's that's remarkable that that they can sit there and be entertaining for that period of time, uh, with, with, like because that's that's live stream. They don't get the benefit of going back to to edit what they're doing because if they have a if they have ten minutes where they're arguing about some some like minor detail, then that's then that's what makes it in. And I'm you know I'm not making I'm not saying that that's good or bad it's just uh it's just you know that's i guess a draw well maybe it is a drawback of 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 doing it live but even even personally like i can't i can't conceive of of sitting there and recording for four hours or even even two and a half i even after the two hours that we normally play i'm i'm kind of mentally uh exhausted normally when we get together it's it's in the evening um you know everybody has like we all have full-time jobs and like other obligations outside of work that we have to, to deal with. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, we're doing it as a, as a, you know, as a podcast, obviously, but it's also sort of our way to, to relax and, and hang out and socialize. So, you know, there's a f fraction of the time that we're together that we're just kind of talking, catching up, you know, we're, each of us is, is very busy outside of the podcast. So when we, when we do get together, it's, it's, uh, I try to ensure that it's still as much about having fun playing the game and, and not as much about making an interesting recording. Cause I mean, none of us are like voice actors or improv comics or anything like that. We're just, you know, five friends who hang out and, and play D and D. Yeah, that's something. That's something that I I need to focus on a lot more in my games, and I feel like a lot of DMs need to focus on as well. D and D is about having fun, and a lot of times that fun is just going to be socializing. Because I there are times where I get I'm the grumpy DM, and I'm like, I want to get to my stuff because you know I I spent time on it. But at the end of the day, you are sitting around a table with your friends and. I think we all need to remember that you know you're you're hanging out with your friends. You're not just doing this thing. You're you're spending time with friends. So treat them like friends. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had the I've made the misstep, I think, of of trying to uh, have too tight of a, a grip on the momentum of the campaign, and it doesn't always 
I shouldn't say doesn't always. It in my experience, it has not been the a good thing. Um, you know, it's at least I've found that letting the players sort of approach the game in their own way. You know, a they're they're having fun, and if and if it's and if they're not progressing as fast as I would like, then then either a I accept that, or or b I you know try to maybe not make the game as 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 dense in certain areas so that they have less to to slog through. So it's it's as much as I would like to to say that oh you're 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 all privileged with having the experience of my magnum opus here. It's 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 not going to work out that way. It's it's uh it's going to be at the end of the day the story will be how these four or whoever survives uh save the day. And I guess that's another thing I wanted to to ask you about. You mentioned um if someone dies, are you going to have that player then make a new character and a new person joins the cast, or are you just going to vote them off the island, uh, to use the parlance of the island? <laughs> uh, if somebody dies, um, they'll, uh, you know, the whichever player is going to stay in until the end of the campaign, but with, with a new character. As to whether, I mean, as to what happens with the various like backstory elements that I've planned because I've got sort of things on the go with with most characters in terms of NPCs and like uh, s- story elements that tie into the various backgrounds. I mean, there's there's the risk of you know all of these things kind of going out the window. It's just kind of like a, a hazard of the of the occupation. Yeah, that kind of stuff. A lot of DMs. I've I've dealt with that in my games. Um, the one game that I played in for the longest time, uh, that actually happened to one of the characters. Um, he kind of built up a lot of backstory, and there's a lot of stuff going on with this character. And he got into a duel with that vampire that he willed out of existence. Um, that vampire had some very powerful friends, who. Well, he wasn't willed out of existence. He was willed out of that plane and told he could never come back. So the vampire teleported this guy to his plane, and they had a duel to the death. And that player ended up losing. But what a way to go. I mean, that's... (laughs) Absolutely. And when it happened, uh, the DM said, I can make it so that we can resurrect you, because we had some powerful spellcasters at that point. And the player said, honestly, this is the best way that this character could go out, so just kill me. And that's if if any if any member of the of my group uh, happens to die, I really do want it to be. I, I really at least hope that they're sort of satisfied that it was a good death. If not heroic, then perhaps humorous. I think you've actually mentioned. Um, was it Tom who said that he felt like uh, you weren't being hard enough on them during the chase scene? It, it was. It was the it, it was the encounter immediately uh, before the chase scene that had the. Uh, the Umber, Umber Hulk chasing them. Yeah, I've I've mentioned this a couple times in the behind the screen episodes where, you know, I, I spend a good good deal of time thinking about it uh, after the fact, and I I do think that he had a point that uh, that particular encounter was, uh, you know, there were a number of kind of glaring mistakes uh, that were made, um, and I don't know if if I could have maybe set the stage better. Or made things a little bit less um, complicated because I had the sort of room that they were in that I described, where there's this section of, of rubble here, so it's difficult terrain, and the, there's this pillar over here, and there's this 
you know, pool of water and stuff like that. And, and you know, we don't play with a with a grid or or a battle map or anything like that. So it's it's a little bit a little bit trickier to make sure that everyone's on, on the same page, that everybody has the same understanding. Because I can say I can try to describe how I envision the room, but I I you know, as a DM, you have to make sure that I, sort of everybody can sort of see what you see in your head and maybe field field questions before the encounter starts. But uh, I, yeah, I do remember quite plainly that, uh, that there were like a couple rounds where um, Spruce didn't, didn't attack. I think he was waiting for something specific to happen. Although, um, you know, we were in, in initiative order. So uh, I, I don't know if he was like making a character choice because he's, he said a, a number of times, like out, out of game that he like Spruce is very reluctant to actually kill anyone. But on the, I mean, on the other hand, a, a TPK at that point would have been completely uh, anticlimactic. But in hindsight, uh, would I have done things uh, maybe a bit differently? Uh, I like, I think Vanna, Vanna was unconscious at the end of that encounter, and I think Spruce was very low on health. Um, I think if, you know, if, if one of them had died, I don't think that would have been an unreasonable outcome. But, uh, you know, we kind of we talked about it, and I, I saw Tom's point. And uh, you know he didn't he did not at all come come at it with uh, with a like any sort of hostile attitude whatsoever. Well, of course not. He's Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> we do we do have that going for us. Um, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know I, I want to take all the feedback of my players, uh, uh, you know, fairly seriously. Even though it's a game, I want to make sure that. Uh, that it's that there is sort of the risk of failure because if there isn't the risk of failure, then there's, it's, I think it takes away from the game. I feel like every DM has that, that one moment in their campaign or some people more than one moment where you're like, I dropped the ball on that one. Yeah. And I think, I think that's going to happen. Uh, I mean, to probably to every DM at one point or another. Uh, I, I think that was probably one of the first, um, of Matt Colville's videos that I had watched where he was talking about, I think it was called catastrophic failure, which I found uh, really interesting. But yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, again, another hazard of the occupation where things will temporarily not go the way that, that the DM wants. Maybe the players will be temporarily uh, discouraged or, or unhappy with a certain turn of events, but uh, you know, that doesn't, doesn't bring the entire, endeavor crashing down so as we uh, as we kind of wind down here um are we winding down i'm just getting started <laughs> i mean if you want to keep going we can keep going i'll cut that part out well i mean i, I mean i know i was i was i don't want to say maligning but i was i was saying you know what having having a certain runtime is good and having too long is not good and i've i i've probably been too too verbose here <laughs> i mean I told everyone in that first episode, these episodes will go as long as they need to. So if you've got more to say, we can say some more. All right. I mean, well, let's, let's just keep going with these questions because I'm, I'm having a great time. All right. Um, earlier you mentioned uh, how Matt kind of takes a more analytical approach to playing his character, and that doesn't necessarily come through in the episodes. If you could go around the table, and you don't have to disparage anyone unless you really want to start some shit on this podcast. <laughs> um, just kind of 
Describe everyone's play style as you see it. Um, okay, so so uh, Matt's uh, first off uh, is is very uh, tactical and analytical. He he wants to take in the entire you know uh, area of the encounter. He wants to know where where the obstacles are, you know how far he is to to these obstacles and to the enemies. Um, and he wants to sort of know which enemies maybe look like priority targets. And then he wants to look at all, all of his abilities and choose the best series of actions that he can possibly make. And he wants to do this every turn. And I, I mean, it's, it's great. And I try to sort of lessen the impact of that by, by telling him sort of like one or two turns in advance when he's going to be up. Uh, my wife's is very, very much, uh, much more simple than that. She enjoys destroying things. I mean, in the game. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, and so her, like this character, Vanna, and a character from her our previous game where she was a battle master, both had, I think, the same sort of personality character trait where they like like to approach problems with the most simple and direct path. So that kind of informs how she approaches a combat is that she's going to like maybe pick the I think she she too will ask like which which targets maybe can be taken down more quickly, which ones are the most injured. Um keep her keep her eye open for things like that. But she will just you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Um Candace's use of the bard is I think much more interest. Well, I shouldn't much more interesting. It is it is interesting in the way that for basically for for the past year she has been sort of growing this character who doesn't have any concept of of real or or has has come into the campaign with no concept of 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 violence or of war. And so she plays her character that way, where her character does very little in the way of offensive like actual actual melee or ranged attacks but tries to uh, manipulate her opponents and to manipulate the battlefield in a way that makes her seem in a way that makes her seem uh, grand and elegant so her, her actions sort of have to serve two purposes it has to sort of uh, you know puff her up and also to uh, you know uh, have some some interesting impact uh, on the battlefield. Lately, though, she's been trying to overcorrect, where where she's been told that she has to be like she has to sort of toe the line, so to speak, in terms of of being more reliable in in combat scenarios. So there's there's been some some unfortunate overcorrection, in particular the one uh, episode where she's interrogating some dragonborn. So yeah, she'll approach she'll approach combat in terms of very much in terms of uh, s- sticking very closely to her her character. I think Tom is similar in that respect in that he uh, he will as as a gnome rogue try to to make the most of being sneaky. Uh, so he he's also trying to really take advantage of his character's strengths. But uh, there's been uh, some occasions where and and even in just the episode that we recorded last night, where he may throw caution to the wind, uh, this episode won't be out for a couple of weeks, so maybe it's a bit of a sneak preview. Uh, he's throwing throwing caution to the wind and really about to go toe to toe with an enemy that he despises. So, 
But I mean, that's still in in, in keeping with his character. Yeah, uh, it's funny you you say that about Candace. When the podcast first started and she was introducing her character, I thought, oh, this is going to be the character I don't like. But as the game has gone on, and you know, Faye has kind of learned that the world is not all that she thought it was. I'm starting to realize, like you said, Candace is a role player, and her play style is actually very similar to mine. It's just she's playing a different kind of character than I typically play. Yeah, I think her, like, she she kind of came in, even from the very beginning, with uh, her own character arc in mind. Like, she's she's come into the setting completely ignorant of the world uh, at large, because uh, she was, uh, you know, sheltered all of her life. We we even toyed about calling like the the land that she's from calling it Oblivia, because every <laughs> like everyone there is like her, and they they just uh, uh, they're like the Eagleton to Pawnee of the rest of the world. But she she had this arc in mind when she even started. Like she comes in basically knowing nothing. Uh, she's not a hero, and then just sort of through all of these different trials, she will learn to do. She will learn to understand like what it means to be heroic. And I think there's like we're maybe starting to get glimpses of that. I think in the in the one episode with the uh, the Iron Titan, uh, there was a bit of that where she was really doing doing a few moves that were very brave to the point of foolishness. So I'm I'm really interested to see like how how that all pans out at like at which point she will really you know what what event will will make her realize that uh, that she needs to step up or that she has the ability to to make it like to make a real difference and to to make that choice to be you know to be that sort of archetypical hero. While at the same time making it grand and, you know, making her look, you know, glamorous. Yeah, when when I play a character, I usually have an arc in mind, but I start from a very different point that she does. My favorite movie of all time is Sin City, and my favorite video game series is The Witcher series. So every character I make, I feel like, turns into some kind of world-weary badass who's seen his share of combat and knows the, the the gritty realities of that and she's the exact opposite so it it kind of bumped right up against my sensibilities so your characters are like gotta dust off these spurs for one more rodeo sort of thing yes <laughs> yeah they my the people in my old campaign made a joke because i was at the time the youngest player but my character was the oldest. My character, Cromwell, he was like 35, and everyone else's was like 18 to 23, I think. But they were all older than me, and so... And it, they all had like kind of weird quirks, and Cromwell was very world-weary, and the way I describe him is Aragorby one Kenobi. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an amalgamation that I would like to see. And so it was basically Cromwell babysitting all these weirdos was what it turned into. So he sort of like reluctantly accepts the uh, the call to the call to action. Yes, <laughs> including at one point uh, the the same cleric who had that whole altercation with the vampire. He worshipped. He was a storm cleric, and he worshipped the god of storms. But his god took on like the aspects of the calm following the storm. 
Oh, that's a neat one. And what it ended up being was he had basically he was basically like the Rastafarian cleric of that <laughs> setting. And at one point, following a major tragedy, Cromwell stumbles into the temple that this guy had set up in our our city that we established. And Cromwell and this cleric end up getting high together. <laughs> That'll happen. That will happen. Yep. I mean, my group already went through like a whole Mykonid colony, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of gags about yep. doing mushrooms yep. and stuff. <laughs> a lot of shroom yeah. jokes. Yeah. The the cleric that I'm playing right now, I, as I mentioned, he's he's super optimistic and believes that everything works out for for the best. And the the world that the DM has sort of uh, tr- transported our party into is completely amoral. <laughs> there is no sense of right and wrong. There is a sense of law, but there is not a sense of whether any law is better or worse than another. And so I find that that my car- my cleric, who's as I said, like based on Chris Traeger from Parks and Rec is going through the exact same arc as Chris Traeger from Parks and Rec is having this huge existential crisis of like being lawful good, but being in a world where morality is completely um, like not even, not even a component built into the world. It's very, (laughs) it's very, uh, it's a very challenging (laughs) thing to approach to try to be good when there is no objective good. Please tell me he has recurring nightmares about a drider. Oh, I haven't even thought about nightmares. Uh, I mean, the la- I think the, one of the last sessions we had, he was like laying on his back talking to this uh, caterpillar, being like, you know, man, sometimes I just don't know. All right, so you've mentioned Parks and Rec multiple I have. times. Yep. So, and I love the show as well. So let's let's do something fun and extremely nerdy. Can we place the main characters of Parks and Rec on an alignment chart? Okay, um, sure. Uh, I think, well, the, the I, I mean, do you, I, should we start with Leslie? Yeah. Okay. Let's start with Leslie. I mean, well, to me, she seems uh, lawful good, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'd put her. Um, I want to say that Andy Dwyer might be chaotic good. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah, I, can, I can see chaotic good. I was thinking either... For him, either chaotic neutral or chaotic good. I can see probably more chaotic good. Okay. Because he's he's a very kind and good-hearted individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on Ron Swanson? So I would either put Ron Swanson at neutral good or true neutral. Yeah, definitely some some form of, of neutrality. I was thinking like um, lawful neutral. I think... I think a case could be made really for any of those. I would say, though, with him being a libertarian and as a libertarian myself, we don't like the law. So, OK, f- fair enough. Now, can I can I ask you something? And this is kind of this is kind of um, always made me wonder when I watch the show is uh, is Ron Swanson. Does he I feel like th- the way that he's portrayed is almost like an anarchist. Is that. I mean, I have a very passing understanding of uh, of like the the tenets of libertarianism. I don't want to get too far into politics here, but since we're, since we're talking about Ron Swanson, I, I couldn't couldn't resist. Do you think he's portrayed almost as an anarchist, or or do you think that his what he says kind of holds true? I think well, 
being being a philosophy guy, I've I've read up on a lot of libertarianism and and done a lot of research into that. A lot of very consistent libertarians end up falling into the category of anarchism or anarcho-capitalism, and I feel like Ron is consistent with that. Um, however, I think a lot of his political stances are just okay. We called him a libertarian we'll throw in some kind of pseudo-libertarian thing here, and it's mostly not really about his politics, more about just the way he is as a character. Kind of like the, the politics, and this is true in a lot of Parks and Rec, the, poli the politics that these people have, with the exception of Leslie, don't seem to fit in to the story very often. Leslie's the only one who I can see, like, actual real political consistency in. Well, I'm gonna have to like do some more reading on uh, on libertarianism because I'm I'm like my uh, my interest has been piqued by by what you're saying here. <laughs> um, who who else is there? Uh, there's uh, Tom Haverford. Uh, to me, he's um, very frequently like very selfish. So what where would that fall? That would be a um, sort of like a neutral evil. I'd stick him. Yeah, I can see neutral evil. I would probably stick him at chaotic neutral though, because I don't think he. I don't think he means any harm. That's fair. I could see that. Yeah, he does. He does have these moments where he redeems himself, um, where uh, I think he learns learns to do better by by examples of others. So, yeah, he's frequently selfish, but with with uh, moments of redemption. Uh, April Ludgate. Chaotic evil. <laughs> I'm sure that's what she would say too. Yeah, let's let's leave it there. <laughs> that's a layup. <laughs> Are we missing like any main characters? Like Chris Traeger, I feel like is lawful. I feel like almost like he's lawful good because he's he's not lawful neutral, even though he's a like a diehard public servant. Um, because he, on a few occasions, he goes outside of his capacity as like city manager to volunteer to help like Leslie with her various campaigns and stuff. So I think he, he's lawful good. Um, uh, Ben Wyatt, this might be controversial. Oh, well, let's hear it. I think, I think Ben Wyatt is lawful evil. Whoa. Ben Wyatt is lawful evil. I need to hear more about this. It's more so early on. I feel like he kind of, he comes around as the show goes on. I feel like he, he kind of comes around a little bit and maybe, by the time the show's over, lawful evil doesn't describe him. But a lot of the time, he he's very much a stickler for the rules, and he's trying to avoid the, the mistakes of his past, and he almost does not care who he tramples on to do that. Well, also, and he, he and Chris sort of had that uh, arrangement where uh, they would go into, like, a city's, uh, f like, finance department uh, or what have you, and... And uh, Chris would sort of soften them up, and then Ben would come in and just annihilate their budgets. And he seemed to have like a lot of like take a lot of pleasure in doing that. Hmm. I'm not going to watch the show the same way again, man. You've you've <laughs> you've changed changed my outlook here. And the first person that he imitated, like while sitting on on his own iron throne, seemed to be Joffrey. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He he was the Joffrey Baratheon of Colorado. <laughs> You know, most most of the group, uh, we went out a couple of weeks ago and did Parks and Rec trivia at a local uh, uh, pub called The Round Table. And 
we thought we were prepared. We were not prepared by how like hardcore this other team was that that actually won. Uh, they called themselves the Duke Silver Fan Club, and they were asking. <laughs> They were asking for like every time that they got an answer wrong, they they were like hands up. They're like challenge. They're like, oh, geez, we're gonna lose. <laughs> but we came in second out of three, so I mean, perfectly average. Now there there's an interesting question. Does Duke Silver have a separate alignment from Ron Swanson? Ooh, fascinating. But because Duke Silver might be chaotic neutral. He's all about that jazz. That's the yeah. yeah. Chaotic neutral, like a or or, yeah, that's neutral jazz. That's what he is. <laughs> neutral jazz. <laughs> and now, I think we still need to place Jerry, Donna, and Anne, and then we have everyone. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Um, Anne Anne seems to be like very close to uh, Leslie, but not as lawful. So she's on the definitely on the good spectrum. But um, more, maybe more chaotic, less lawful. Uh, Donna is, I think, more chaotic neutral. What do you think? I'd actually put Donna neutral evil. Okay, I can see that. She has a lot of strict rules about who can and can't go in her her bends. Yeah, there's that. But then, like, I think, I forget which episode. There was an episode with a Civil War reenactment, right? This was early on. This is like season two. I think. Amazingly, this is escaping me. This is this is but this is why said, we came in second in trivia. Mm-hmm. Donna and Anne are talking about relationships, and Donna says that her code is "use him, abuse him, and lose him." <laughs> so, okay, yeah. <laughs> Jer- Jerry, Gary, Terry, Larry, uh, Gergich, Gingrich. Um, he's he's tricky. He he is. I I have to say that I want to say chaotic good. I think that's fair. I don't know what else to, just to say about him. Uh, I, I, yeah, it was. It's really interesting watching the show and just see, seeing the progression of of how he. Because I, I don't think in season one he was as universally loathed as he is, like by by mid show. So it's it's really. I always enjoy seeing these things in hindsight, like watching his shows for a second and third time. Uh, to see like the evolution of these of these characters when writers can like really see oh hey people really enjoy this so let's lean into it. What about Jeremy Jam? What do you think? Hmm. I'm gonna say chaotic. I, I think know. chaotic evil or maybe neutral evil. I don't know. He seems very just not lawful. He's not lawful in any way. So I I think he's like bordering between chaotic and uh, and neutral. I think you could probably put him in in chaotic. Fair enough. I think we covered just about everybody. Yep. And if you were on our team, our trivia team, then Douche Nation, our, our team, definitely would have won. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. We weren't called Douche Nation. We were actually called um, Nefertiti's Fjord. <laughs> Love it. I, and, and I'm, I'm half ashamed to say that uh, one of the questions had to do with um, who's the adult film star that Leslie is always compared to and how do you properly spell her name? And I knew it was Brandy Max with four X's. And I had to challenge them on the three X's because that's what they had. And then the host points to me and he says, you really know your porn stars. <laughs> <laughs> but we got the points. So, I mean, that's what that's what matters. So let me ask you this, and I'm not going to have you put any more fictional characters on alignment charts because I know how tricky that can be. Uh, are you as big on The Office as you are on Parks and Rec? 
Um, I, I'm very, very familiar with The Office. I, yeah, I, I, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to admit how many times I've watched it through, but I mean, I've also gone and done The Office trivia and, uh, and we were, we were pretty close to victory, but uh, I mean, I know a thing or two about Dunder Mifflin. My, my siblings and I, those are our two shows. We, we'll quote those two shows to each other, and then we also quote uh, John Mulaney stand-up specials. So who, who are you going to have me put on uh, the alignment chart on, on The Office? Oh, do you, do you want to do oh, that? I mean, I think maybe maybe we'll save it for like a follow-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should save that for a follow-up. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to your show? Because we have we've exhausted my questions. Um, well, I did. I did want to, I guess, make a quick shameless plug that like right now we are um, until it comes out, we are doing a giveaway for like a free copy of the Ghosts of Saltmarsh, which is the next uh, campaign that uh, that Wizards of the Coast is putting out for D&D. Uh, so, I mean, I just want to urge people to, uh, all they have to do is like follow us on, on online, like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, uh, tag a few of their friends and then like leave a comment as to like what their favorite part of the show has been so far and really it can be anything. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. All right. And, uh, where can, where can people find Knights and Nerds, uh, social media, podcatchers, everything? Okay, so on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Knights and Nerds. On Facebook, it's Knights and Nerds Podcast. Uh, I believe that we are on, like we're on uh, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and then our website is just knightsandnerds.com. All right, and where can people find your books? Oh, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, I, I did have them sort of, uh, in a bunch of places, I've recently moved them all onto Amazon, so they are right now available in ebook format on Amazon. You can find the first book um, called "What Will No What Was Forgotten." The Tim forgot the title of his first book. "What Was Forgotten" is the title of the first book, and then if if uh, people want, they can just dive in head first and uh, and and get the box set it's called the war of histories and that's on there too so it's all three for a price that is lower than buying all of them individually but all told it's only a couple bucks so so yeah that is going to be it for today's episode uh tim thank you very much for coming on the show uh, i hope you enjoyed yourself i i am surprised that like i can still like conceive of myself talking about this uh for uh, many hours to come but uh but yeah i i suppose all good things must come to an end but um man i i talk way more than i should <laughs> uh thank you uh very much for like having me on i had a blast i mean hopefully we can do it again sometime uh absolutely anytime you want and and, and maybe we can like hook up that uh that one-off game that uh that you had suggested so long ago I would still love to do that. Awesome. So, yeah, that is going to be it for today's episode. Um, As always, social media stuff will be at the end. And uh, until next time, may all your roles be critical hits. 
Thank you so much for listening to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on Anchor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to shout at me on social media, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And if you like miniatures and miniature painting, you can see all the work that I do on my Instagram, which is at Fenderboy771. Our theme song for Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is Rumblin' by Trey Van Zant, who you can find at youtube.com slash C slash Trey Van Zant, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Thank you so very much, and have a great day.